and open it back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we started last week in our sermon series that we entitled Table Manners. And I've never uh, given this much time uh, before in 27 years of being a pastor to teaching about the table of the Lord. And uh, we started last week. You can easily catch up if you'd like to. You can go to our website. You can listen free of charge on iTunes. If you can't wait, you can go out and purchase a a CD back at the information desk, and uh, you'll be right uh, caught up with us in uh, just one message. But this is our second installment on table manners, and uh, we're talking about how relevant uh, the communion table is to us as a believer. And my heart was, uh, both when we started as it is this point, uh, we're trying to bring order and power back to the table of the Lord And we're talking about the Corinthian church and the Corinthians and their mess-ups. And hopefully we can learn from their mess-ups. I don't know about you. If I can learn from someone else's mess-up, I'd prefer to learn life's lessons that way, wouldn't you? I mean, do you really want to fall in a hole? Do you you really want to learn it on your own? I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I've learned a lot of things on my own. And I'm grateful for those lessons. I'm not exactly grateful for the pain, but I am grateful for the lessons. But I would much rather learn things from other people who have experienced pain so that I might not have to. Amen. You know, that's why you're supposed to listen to the voices of experience and authority. Uh, If you'll listen to those voices, you can be spared a lot of pain. Now, uh, most of us, as we've grown grown older, as we become adults, uh, hopefully, if we're not just totally dysfunctional, we get that lesson eventually. You know, a lot of times it's, It's when you're in your teenage years that you're not understanding these things. You know, when you get about the age of, you know, 14, 15, 16, there's this thing that hits you that you think that the, you know, aggregate knowledge of the universe has now come inside of you. And somehow or another, you're smarter than everyone else on planet Earth. Um, Now, that's pretty much across the board. That's not just your teenager, all right? That's pretty much across the board. Well, uh, unfortunately, that's not true. I can spare you a lot of hard lessons. If you'll just have a heart to be teachable, we can help you navigate life so much more easily and get you to a destiny in so much better state if you'll just listen. And so Paul was trying to communicate some things to the Corinthians, and he was saying, if you'll listen to me, I can help you. If you'll listen to me and not learn things the hard way, I can really get you back on track. And last week we started our whole discussion. I won't, I won't take but 60 seconds to review it. He started by saying, I'm not writing this letter to praise you. As a matter of fact, I'm basically, he says, I'm, I'm writing it to tell you that when you gather together, it's not for good purposes, it's become worse. And he begins to correct them. He begins literally to give them a rebuke. And I just want to remind you that a rebuke doesn't feel good, but ultimately it can help you. So... Keep that, keep that in context. Nobody likes it. I don't like it. You don't like it. We all don't like it. But if we'll hear it, it might be able to save our life. And so he tells them about the table of the Lord, and he's going to bring some correction to them. He's been doing a lot of correcting all through these previous 10 chapters, trying to put some things in order. And I mentioned to you how the Corinthian church, as much as I hate to admit it, in numbers of ways mirrors full gospel churches even today. 
I mean, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we allow liberty in our worship. There's an energy. There's an anointing. There, there's a stage for miracles. There's a place for the supernatural to take place. All these things the Corinthians had. The problem was they had no character. And while I'm glad that I'm a part of the fellowship I'm a part of, I'm, I, I call myself a full gospel pastor. I, 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 I grew up ostensibly in the charismatic renewal. These things I believe and I embrace. But one of the things we have to talk to our folks about is what it means to be in order and what it means not to flippantly deal with important things that are in the Scripture. Just because we worship with great liberty does not mean we're flippant about our worship. Are you following me? Just because we're casual in our atmosphere doesn't mean we're flippant in our attitude. And that's the hard part because, because when we, we have tried through the years to establish sort of a, a reverence and it ends up being law and, and a legalism, and I don't know that I like that, but then when we allow liberty and casualness, then we become flippant. So the question is, how do you bring these things together in order that we can be of right spirit? Well, we have to have ears to hear and we have to be taught in these manners. So hopefully we can jettison what's legalism. We can embrace what's appropriate and and we can begin to please the heart of God. And so last week we talked about how they had corrupted, really defiled the table. And uh, I don't know that that was the most heartwarming message I've ever had to bring to you, but... If you don't understand where the corruption had come in, you may not understand why it was so needful for a restoration to take place. So that's where we're at this morning. We're going to get back to restoring the table, and that's what we've called it today. We've called it Table Revelation, how the table is restored. And if you got to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to continue to speak on on these verses, picking up with verse 23. It's where we left off last week. This is what Paul writes. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. Everyone say, New covenant. There's something new that's going on when we gather around this table. There's a new covenant, he says, in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's what? Now, I'm pausing on different words here because I'm hoping that that dramatic pause gives birth to revelation. I'm hoping that if I underscore or underline certain things, even vocally, that you'll begin to hear in a different way. I'm believing, Holy Spirit, that you're going to help your people in this regard. It says here, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Table revelation, how the table is restored. I have a good pastor friend of mine. Um, He currently is no longer a senior pastor. He's actually on the mission field. And uh, I I respect him. He's he's a good guy. He's pastored many, many years. 
And because of his upbringing, because of how he was trained and the formality of the denomination he was a part of, I think he was a Catholic if I remember right, he had become so uh, repulsed by the, the dead formalism and the dead ritualism that he grew up in that when he was filled with the Spirit and God called him into the ministry and he began to give oversight to his own church, he had such a reaction to dead tradition that he just abolished it all uh, from his church life. They no longer baptized. And, and, and I know that would seem to be horrific to people, but they had a verse. Paul said, he goes, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except the house of Crispus and Stephanus. So there's a verse in there that, that it seems like Paul wasn't all that happy about how they had corrupted the baptism. Uh, they did not receive communion. They just felt like that was tantamount to one of the festivals that Paul said in Colossians no longer was necessary. In fact, uh, they even got away with saying grace before a meal. I thought to myself, brother, you wouldn't have lived in the South, I guarantee you. Everybody prays, it seems like, before they, they eat anything. It's just one of our traditions. But he had seen such dead formality and dead ritual that he reacted to it. He reacted to the lifelessness, the ritual. He had grown in a, a system of religion that had become just, just formal and flippant with what was going on that he was just to the place where he said, no longer. We're just, no longer. It's about a relationship with Christ. All of these things simply image and mirror and demonstrate our relationship with Christ. We don't need, and we ought to foster that on a personal level. Now, let me just say, I don't agree with his particular reaction. I can understand, though, uh, why he did what he did. Because few people in Protestant churches get why we do what we do, especially when it comes to the table of the Lord. For many of us, when we gather and we come to the table of the Lord and we see the communion table set up, we know, well, this is what we do. We're Christians and we go to church and every now and then we receive communion and it's what we do. And, and most people have enough knowledge about what it's about. They know it symbolizes some way, somehow, a Jesus broken body, his shed blood. We're supposed to partake that. And, and I don't know how far they go in their, their thinking, but, but on a very superficial level, we sort of get it. But our problem is that the reason there's no life or power in these moments is because we've lost the revelation of the table. It's just something we do. Now, I want you just to consider something. I was thinking about this. We're reading here from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul wrote the letter. He's an apostle. I want you to think about this. Paul never physically walked with Jesus on this earth. He was never one of the original 12. He did not go down the dusty roads of ancient Palestine, listening to the instruction of Jesus, watching the miracles that Jesus was performing. Paul was never amongst that notable early group that was following Jesus for those three years. Paul was not even at the original communion table. He was not there. He did not see it happen. He did not look into the actual natural eyes of our Lord. Peter, James, John, Thomas, Thaddeus, others, all were gathered there. They saw these things. They heard from Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They, they, 
they slept in the countryside in, in, in this group as, as they were this traveling band of itinerant preachers. They, they, they slept together, ate together, walked together. They were together. And yet, listen to this, Paul has more insight and more revelation on who Jesus is and what's going on at the table than the original 12 had. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that in the Bible, the one who speaks the most and understands the most about concepts like substitution and atonement and the cross and the blood and all that these things provide to us? Have you ever thought for just a moment that really the one who has the greatest insight never once walked with the man? Now, that just sort of triggered something inside of me. It said something to me. It says, it says that this communion moment must transition from our heads to our hearts. It has to transition from the natural to the spiritual. You see, the disciples went to a Passover meal. They weren't getting all that was going on. They, they listened to what Jesus said. They recorded it in the gospel writing, so they they heard the words and they recorded it, but you understand they didn't get it like Paul was fixing to unveil it. It's got to move from just information to revelation. You see, the truth is you could walk with Jesus himself in the flesh and still not get it. Isn't that interesting? We know that to be true. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, you remember Jesus shows up, he walks with them. They don't even get it. They don't even know it's him. Until after he expounds a while on the scriptures and then vanishes away. And then they say, did our hearts not burn? I think this is really important that we get a hold of. Because, because Paul had this, this one-time encounter with the Lord on the Damascus road. And because of that one-time encounter with the Lord, he ends up understanding volumes more than even those who physically, literally walked with him. I think that's what's happened in church life. It's happened all through the body of Christ. We have information and we go through the motions, but we have no revelation. And power doesn't come through information. Power comes through revelation. You've got to understand that you can know the whole gospel message and it's useless to you until it transitions from here to here. Until it becomes something that you simply assent to, till something you have embraced and trusted, and there's no way, no how, anyone's going to shake you out of this. That's revelation. I call revelation is when the light bulb, click, turns on. That's what I call it. Because a lot of people know the story. A lot of people know the, the, the historical accounts. But few people have such revelation that they walk in power. Now... I want to tell you something here. This is just one of my interesting historical precepts that I came up with. I think it's, I think it's something actually original. I don't have many original thoughts. But I think it's original. If it's not, then I don't know who else would have come up with it. It's this one right here. Behind every dead, lifeless ritual or form, there was once power and life. Behind every dead, lifeless ritual or form, there was once power and life. Let me give you just a couple of examples so you can understand what I mean and ultimately where I'm going. Let's say, for example, the tabernacle, the temple. I don't have time to go through all that that may mean, but most of you are aware that the tabernacle 
under the ministry of Moses and through those years until eventually we come to the, uh, the kingdom of David and he establishes an actual temple. We know that God required sacrifices from the people, the sacrifices of, of, of the blood of bulls and goats. Most of you know that, that uh, people would bring their, their lambs, their sheep, their animals, depending on what the offering was. They'd bring it to the tabernacle or to the temple. They would go through a certain ritual of, of killing the animal, throwing its parts on the altar. It would be consumed with fire. Uh, from that, once a year, uh, the high priest would take the blood of, of the best animal they could find. He would go in. He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And we all know that through this activity of the tabernacle and the temple, it was not only where the people found reconciliation with God on a short-term basis, but it was there that God would oftentimes show up in powerful ways. For those of you that have never had the opportunity, sometime you need to go and read the accounts of uh, the dedication of Solomon's temple. Second Chronicles, I believe, if I'm remembering it right, about chapter 5 through chapter 7. The dedication of Solomon's temple. When they dedicated this temple, and of course... They were bringing in all these animals to sacrifice and, and, and the Levites were there, the priests were there and they're sacrificing animals and all that they're supposed to do, they are doing. And the Bible tells us that the glory of God came in such proportion that as, as literally you could sense it out of the Hebrew word, it's kabod, which actually means weighty, weighty. Uh, the, the Greek rendition is Shekinah, which is the striking presence of God. The kabod, the shekinah, the glory began to fall on that temple and in that temple area. And the Bible tells us that the priests actually fell over under the weight of the glory. And they were not able to stand. I don't know if you've ever had an experience with God. I can't say that I, I've had the kind that's being described here. I've had incredible moments, experiential moments with the Lord. But can you imagine being under the presence of God that just puts you on the carpet and you can't get up? Can I just say something to you? There was a time going to temple must have been really cool. I mean, it must have been a full-blown camp meeting setting. And they're going through all this Hebrew ritual. And they're going through all this liturgy. And they're going through all this ritualism and tradition. And God shows up. Wow. Now, keeping that in mind, we know today that the blood of bulls and goats no longer reconciles us to God. Because the one perfect lamb has come. We understand that, that a lot of that has turned into just dead, lifeless ritual. And you've got to understand that behind that dead lifelessness, though, there was once a moment that God showed up in a powerful, unusual, amazing way. It's dead ritual today, but there was a day it was anything but dead. I honestly believe, because I grew up in more formalized religious atmospheres. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I was a Methodist. I grew up Methodist. There may be some Methodists that are a little less formal. I grew up in a very formal Methodist church. And of course, we took communion. We had baptisms. We had, we had a lot of liturgy in our church. We were either handed a little booklet every Sunday that we read out of, or, um, you know, we actually had a book. Some of you, I know, have Episcopalian uh, backgrounds. And how many of you know uh, the Book of Common Prayer? Man, that's holy. 
Amen. And you'd pull that book of common prayer out and you'd read whatever time of year it was and the, the, the pastor or the priest would say what he had to say and, and then you'd respond and you'd go through that whole liturgical deal there. And, and in Methodist circles, we did ostensibly the same thing. I think we may have called it responsive readings or you know, things like that. And, and we did all these things. And I'll just say it up front, out loud. I was a teenager through a lot of that. It was dead as a doornail. We'd sing the hymn, the organ, play, just dead, dead as a doornail. Now, I'm not poking fun at them. I'm just simply saying, it's interesting where things come from. I don't know if you've ever read Ephesians 3.10. Can you post that, guys? Post Ephesians 3.10. It says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Just keep that up there for just a moment, guys. I want you to look at that verse. And, and there is a verse right there for corporate declaration. There, what I mean by that is there is a place for the church in one voice to begin to, begin to declare things out loud in order that we might administer the wisdom of God to principalities and powers. Now, I believe that's both angelic God forces, and I believe that's also demonic dark forces. I believe there are moments the church can come together, like repeat after me, in the name of Jesus, we come against every uh, spiritual force of wickedness. We contend with the power of darkness over Charleston, South Carolina. We raise up uh, the blood of Jesus. And we declare to every dark force over our region, come down. And we could do all of this together. And Ephesians 3.10 says that there's a place to do that within the community of faith. Are you following me? Now, here's the deal. I believe that there can be those moments when we do that, that life and power and something significant happens. But what happens when you just do this over and over and over and over again through centuries? It becomes lifeless, dead ritual. Let me tell you, there was a day that the hottest ticket you could get was to a Methodist church. You want to know where the glory was? In the mid-1700s in this country, you go find yourself a Methodist church. I guarantee the presence of God was there. Say, well, well, I don't know, I went to a Methodist church. It doesn't seem all that exuberant now. You're right. It's because through the years, I'm not, you can't just blame a person. You have to blame, uh, I guess if you're putting blame out there, you blame everybody that we allowed our hearts to become cold and hard. And, and we allowed it to become familiar and we treated it flippantly it's what we do when we come to church on sundays it's just how it works and we just go through the motions until finally it's dead as a doornail and like a frog in a slowly warming to boiling kettle we find ourselves dead in the midst of it are you following this precept nod your head if you're starting to understand what i'm trying to communicate here behind every dead ritual there was once life and there was once anointing. The table of the Lord is a great example. It's exactly what was going on here in Corinth. I just want to remind you, Paul looked at them and he said, because you have treated this flippantly, 
because you've not understood or had revelation on what was going on. He said, many of you are weak. You are sick. And you're dying ahead of schedule. That's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Now, I'm telling you, he's trying to get them to connect the dots. Because truth of the matter is that you can, you can legitimately and biblically make the leap that if mishandling the communion table causes you to be weak and sick and die before your time, then at the same token, if we were to receive revelation of the table, if we were to understand the power of what's happening at this particular moment, then there very much lies the possibility that as we come to the table of the Lord, you can be healed. You can be strengthened from weakness and, I don't know about you, but a few years could be put on your life for kingdom service. If we had revelation of the table. You see, this table is a lot more than just an illustrated sermon or message to us. There very much lies in this moment the capacity for miracles to take place in all of our lives. Now, I'm going to remind you, it wasn't just on the table of the Lord. It was on the offering too. The Bible said in the early church when Ananias and Sapphira didn't handle the offering right, they died. You say, well, why did that happen? That's the glory of God. You understand, when the priests, high priest went into the most holy place, you do remember this, they used to tie a rope onto his foot with a little bell because if he was not right before God when he went into the most holy place in order to offer uh, atonement before the Lord, he would literally die. And the only way they could get him out is if they heard the bell ring and then they could drag him out. You see, these are the things we've lost within the life of the church. Now, I don't believe God's out just to kill people, just to be killing them. I mean, he could have done that any numbers of times all through the years. Jesus says he was about life and that more abundantly. But you don't get life and that more abundantly unless you begin to get revelation on how that life can come to you. And so these are the things we're trying to see restored again to the table of the Lord. Now, how's that going to happen? Well, I've been saying it over and over again by once again receiving revelation on what this is all about. I said to you that Paul understood better than the original 12 that the Lord's Supper was a moment the church could be reminded that they were under a new covenant. I'll say that again. This was a moment that the church could be reminded that they were under a new covenant. And because they were under a new covenant, there was new provision. There was power. There was possibility. Not just because of the table, but because of what the table represented. It represented the cross. It represented the death of Jesus. The table of the Lord. It represented the effects of the cross of Jesus Christ. His broken body. His shed blood. And to treat it flippantly, think about this for just a moment. To treat it flippantly is to really make a mockery of the cross. You literally join in with the crowd that watched Jesus as he was being crucified before our very eyes, as he was sacrificing on the cross in order that you and I might be made right with God. We are literally joining in with the crowd saying, this means nothing. This is of no effect. 
Come off the... They were hollering out, if you be king, come on down. They didn't get it. They had no revelation. It wasn't any big deal. They just, they just cast their curses and their flippancy the whole while. Jesus was making available the provision of God himself into people's lives. Is that not remarkable? But here's the good news. The good news is if we get it and we receive revelation of that, we revere it, we embrace it, suddenly the provision of the cross can ignite and become effective in all of our lives. Now, I just want to remind you of something. I know it's quiet. I'm teaching today. I understand that. I don't have as many funny stories as I had last week. But let's just review what the effects of the cross are. I'm, I'm, I'm stirring revelation in your system again. What are the effects and provisions of the cross? Number one, how many of you know salvation? You aren't saved unless you come to terms with the cross. The cross is where salvation comes. In fact, the word sozo in the Greek is not just limited to an eternal home, but sozo actually means to be saved, to be saved from yourself, to be saved Really, to be delivered from all the strongholds and bondages of the enemy. I'll keep proclaiming this until I'm maybe the last voice. I'm sure there are others. Sometimes I get that Elijah syndrome, you know. I'm like, I'm the only one left. I, and God rebuked Elijah, and every now and then he'll rebuke me. But there doesn't seem to be as many. But I'll say it again. There is no sin bigger than the blood. There is, there is no bondage in your life that the blood can't break. You don't have to walk out of these doors this morning and out of this building and think that you're relegated to live under the bondages and strongholds and problems you've got right now. I'm telling you, that's a lie of the enemy. It's even been propagated through the pulpits of America that look at people and just say that the cross can forgive you and isn't it great to be forgiven? And I say, amen. Who doesn't want their past forgiven? I do. But it doesn't stop with just forgiving me and leaving me the same. The cross transforms me. It changes me. It saves me. It delivers me. It looses me. I'm not the same anymore. You say, well, just why, why hasn't it happened in this area? I, I can't answer all these questions. Sometimes we walk things out. But this much I know. You get a revelation of the cross and you can be set free. You may have little issues and the scripture tells us that the believers are obviously going to have challenges we're human beings but sweet jesus help us i'm not looking to see how low i can go i'm, I'm going for my savior and how i can be more like him that's one of the provisions of the cross what's number two number two is oh yes yeah, substitution he he went to the cross so you wouldn't have to. He took upon your sin so that you wouldn't have to carry it. He took upon your burdens in order. Now listen, not just so you wouldn't have to carry it, but he took upon, he took upon sin so that you could take upon his righteousness. See, it's even better than that. He took upon your disease in order that you could take upon his healing. He took upon your bondages in order that you could take upon his freedom. That's, that's what the provision of the cross is. The cross is, if, if you're feeling weak, you cast your weakness upon the Lord. And what will He do? He will loose you His strength. It's substitution. Isn't that good news? 
He says, when I'm weak, he is strong. Sure. Part of the provision. He gives you all there is of himself in order that you can prevail. What's another thing? I'm just going through what the cross has. We just need to be reminded. Healing by his stripes, we are healed, the scripture says. Peter used that very uh, passage out of Isaiah 53 in order to communicate to the people of his day when a man was healed that this is what it's all about. That Jesus bore stripes in order that you might be healed. Every stripe that went across his back with those lashes, every single one, it took out your cancers. It took out your flus. It took out your blood diseases. It took out your migraines. It took out your broken bones. I don't know, just whatever it takes out. Uh, Whatever it addresses, it takes out. Every stripe, it was some disease, some infirmity. You say, well, how come people are still sick, Pastor? It's because we live in a fallen world and the enemy isn't dead. And so, yes, all of us are going to find ourselves dealing with sickness and disease. Earlier in the year, I had a a flu come through the house. I'm I'm going to tell you how real this is. I'm, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. I'm at the porcelain altar. Sick to my stomach, kneeling down there before the Lord, giving him everything that's in me. It eventually got to the place where there wasn't nothing left in me to give. There's nothing worse than that. I'm telling you, getting sick's bad, but when you've got rid of it all and you're still sick, that's bad. And I'm sitting, I'm, I'll never forget it. I'm, I'm, I'm at the porcelain altar and I look up and I say, Lord, If you're going to take me, just take me. Just kill me and let's be done with it. Now, gratefully, he didn't kill me and take me. But I'm telling you that because can, can you get sick? Yes, you can get sick. But at the same time, when I'm doing that, I'm going by his stripes, I'm healed. By his stripes, I'm healed. Oh, God, I feel bad, but by his stripes, I'm healed. And you know, I don't know why it is that we can't avoid every sickness. Again, I'll just go back that we're falling, fallen world, fallen people, and we face it. But I still believe God is a healing God. It is his preference that his people be whole and well. I believe that there is something within the kingdom that wants to manifest that causes his people to arise in strength and longevity and healing. I know there's a day if Jesus doesn't return, there's a day I'm going to die And going to be with the Lord somewhere in my mid-90s. I keep saying that. Why? It's because, number one, I'm putting my confession out there for years, decades in advance. Because, you see, I believe the heart of God is to keep us around for a while so that we can do kingdom business. I'm all up to going to heaven. I love being in heaven. But once I get to heaven, I'm of no earthly good. But if he'll keep me here on the earth for a while longer, I can still preach some gospel. I can still win me some people to Jesus. I can still declare the whole counsel of God. We can still press the claims of the kingdom into the earth. That's from the cross. Then lastly, number four, I think it's divine power. What's a part of the provision? Divine power in life. Post guides, will you, 1 Corinthians one eighteen? Listen to this. Paul writes this. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power 
of God. Do you understand what we're reflecting on at this table? His broken body, his shed blood, is the power of God. I just want to let you stew in that for a minute. It's the power of God. And here's the outcome. When we come to the table with this revelation, it literally becomes a moment where miracles and supernatural power can begin to flow into the individual's body and into the body of the church. That's what I believe Paul meant. If we'll just leap over. I'll be here next week, but just look at verse 29. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, and again, we'll explore this next week, eats and drinks judgment to himself, look at not discerning or not having revelation concerning the Lord's body. See, when we come flippantly, what we're saying is, I don't get what this is all about. I don't understand what this is all about. I don't know that I really care what this is all about. I'm just doing it because it's what we do. And Paul says, he says, that's the reason the table has become a source of judgment to you rather than a source of power to you because you've not discerned the Lord's body. You've not understood the provision of the cross. You've not understood what's been made available to you. Now, here's the question that it all comes down to, and we're going to come to the table of the Lord here in just a minute. How is the provision that I just mentioned to you, how, how is that transferred to you and me? Here's the answer. The elements are a point of contact. Write that down, point of contact. The elements are a point of contact. Now you say, well, what's a point of contact? It's a natural, a point of contact is a natural action that provides a place for a person to release their faith and touch the supernatural. I'll say that again. It's a natural action that provides a place for a person to release their faith and touch the supernatural. I'll give you a quick example. I'm going to give you some others here in just a moment, but it's like the laying on of hands. If we were to bring you down and laid hands on you, that becomes, why do we lay hands? Can we pray for people across the mile? Sure we can. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But to lay hands on someone becomes a point of contact. And in that point of contact, faith can be released and spiritual resource or power can be loosed to that person. You see, there's nothing necessarily spiritual about the action. You understand that all day long you're laying hands on people. I mean, you're shaking hands, maybe you're hugging a neck, patting somebody on the back. I mean, all day long, I mean, we touch people and in various forms, obviously appropriate ways. But, but there's lots of touch that goes on through the day. And how many of you know that all of that touch that goes on, there's nothing necessarily significant or spiritual about it. But there comes a moment that if, if it becomes a focal point, that there can be in that touch a point of contact that you can lose your faith and suddenly... Where, where maybe I walk up to my daughter and I pat her on the back or I kind of rub her on the head just, just being affirming daddy. I mean, those things are good. Maybe nothing spiritual happens, but there can be those other moments where I say, come here, and I lay my hand on her head and I begin to invoke the name of Jesus into whatever need she has. And that moment becomes the point of contact that can be used 
to conduit spiritual power. Are you following me? People have argued through the years over, over the communion elements. Uh, I, you know, you don't care probably all that much about all the different viewpoints of the communion elements. You know, they're big words. You know, transubstantiate, consubstantiate. Most of us as Protestants grew up with the memorial view. We believe that when we come to the table of the Lord, we are memorializing the Lord's death. That's kind of done us some harm because we've almost trivialized what we're doing here. It's just sort of a sentimental journey. It's just sort of an illustrated sermon. And while I'm not Catholic, so I don't necessarily believe in the transubstantiating of the elements, I can understand why they came up with certain of these views. But, but you've got to understand that the elements in and of themselves contain no power. You understand? I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. Underneath this napkin, crackers. Underneath this, grape juice. And you understand that in and of itself, it's crackers and grape juice. I'll never forget in seminary, we got in this big argument one time over the nature of the elements. We were wondering if you could use like chips and Coke. You know, I don't know. Then I had another guy say, well, what about beer and pretzels? I said, well, obviously you're an Episcopalian, so we'll just leave it at that. There's nothing, there's nothing in these elements. But you got to understand that these elements, though it's very natural, you may go home, you may serve it to your kids. They may want, they may need a snack tonight and you give them a box of Triscuit and some Welch's grape juice and they just go, they go have a snack. There's nothing in that except it becomes at this moment a point of contact for the power of God. Is it a memorial? Sure, it's a memorial. But is there power that can be loosed in this moment? Absolutely. And have we missed it? You bet we have. Yes, we have. All through Scripture, there are these points of contact. Come on, I'm going to go through this real quick, guys. Number one, the serpent of brass. When the people in the wilderness were being bit by snakes. I think it was Numbers 21. The Lord commanded Moses to build a pole with a snake on it. Which some people don't realize that that's actually what the medical profession emblem is. Now, you may never have known that. But, but the command was that the people gaze at this bronze serpent on the pole. And if they would gaze upon it, they would be healed. And it represented, of course, the cross. And there's all sorts of wonderful things that we can image out of that moment. But here was the problem. The problem was... That as the years went on, they began to worship the pole instead of the God who commanded the pole be built. And it became ritual and familiar and it lost its power. Come on, there are, there are people, I don't know if there are any here today, there may be. I know there are whole denominations. They worship, they worship this table. They could not conceive of having a Sunday service without taking communion. They couldn't conceive of that. They would go, they would go, they would flip. If they were to get me as their pastor and I came in and said, we're not doing communion today, they would run me out of town. We have communion every Sunday. And it doesn't mean a thing to anybody. But you do it. 
I guess you got to check in whatever column you were wanting God to check. There's the Passover meal. You know, the scripture number two tells us that when they partook of the Passover meal, that, that actually people were healed. And, uh, of course, you know, the death angel passed over because of the Passover and the partaking of that meal. It was just a meal, and yet they escaped death because of the partaking of that meal. I could go on and on. Naaman's healing, 2 Kings chapter 5. You remember Naaman, the Assyrian general who was full of leprosy, and the prophet said to him, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan. And you'll recall, if you know the story, that Naaman said, why are you sending me to Jordan? It's the dirtiest cruddiest river around. I could go to the Parfar River. It's a whole lot cleaner river. Makes a whole lot more sense. How could your God ever heal me out of the Jordan? Well, how many of you realize the Jordan River doesn't heal anybody? In fact, you could go to Israel today, jump in the Jordan River. You could be full of cancer and it will not heal you. But for Naaman at that moment, that river became his point of contact. That when he dipped in it, literally he had to do it seven times. Can you see him? One, I can't believe I'm doing this. Two, I opened my eyes on that one. I can't see a thing. Three, I mean, you can hear him, everyone. And, and, until he gets to six, nothing's happened. Six times he's going, six, I've done this six times. I guess I'm already wet. Seventh time, skin cleanse. It became a point of contact the most i think familiar story of all is the woman with the issue of blood you know the one for 30 years not to be indelicate ladies but she has had literally a period non-stop for 30 years now us guys can't in any way shape or form understand that but every woman in this room gets that that is not fun and it was getting to the place it was killing her the Bible tells us the doctors had done everything they could. She heard Jesus was in town. You know the story. She got on her hands and knees, pressed through the crowd on the dirty streets. She pressed through the crowd, saying, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she pressed through that crowd until she got to the hem of his garment. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, who touched me? And the disciples looked at him and said, well, Lord, there's only about 10,000 people here. I don't want to take a list on this, if you don't mind. No, no, he said, somebody, see, everybody's, everybody's touching Jesus. Everybody's touching, but nobody's getting healed except one woman who touched with revelation. She touched with, with the light bulb clicking on. She was the one, if I could just, and allow me just a little liberty here. She was the one that came down the aisle at the communion service while everyone else was doing their thing and getting their snack. She was the one that said, if I partake of these elements, the provision of the cross can ignite and be my personal provision. She understood Thousands didn't. Thousands didn't care. Thousands were just wanting an autograph. Thousands had just got in line. Thousands were just doing what everyone else was doing. But there was one woman who got a hold of the revelation and it literally cured her. See, that's what goes on every time we take communion. A lot of people come. A lot. I'm not, no judgment. Don't misunderstand me. We're doing what we've always been told we should do. 
We know enough to know this is something Christians do. I'm telling you, there's one or two, maybe just one or two. I'm hoping 20, 30, 50, 100, 200. That would be incredible. But somebody's going to get this this morning. And you're going to take the cracker. And you're going to take the juice. And at that moment, something's going to change in your mortal body. Now that'll be one more communion service for you. We see it again, Paul's hankies and aprons. He, he prays over them, sends them out. People get their hanky. And they lay it over themselves and they start getting healed. These are just points of contact. It's not something spooky. It's not something crazy. I understand that there are people on television that do silly things that may reflect badly on the rest of us. But can I just share this with you? Some of them have biblical precept as to why. They pray over a piece of cloth and they send it to you. Maybe, maybe, maybe you think it's goofy. I bet the person that got healed doesn't think it's goofy. You may come today and you say, I, I don't see it. I just think this is a little sentimental journey and I'm just, that's kind of where I am. And that's cool and that's good. But there may be someone here today that you desperately need a miracle. And all of a sudden, it's lighting up inside of you. You see, the table of the Lord is that point of contact. It's the contact for the provision of the cross. The elements in and of themselves will not heal you. They will not save you. They will not deliver you. They will not help you. Do you understand? It is a cracker and juice. You can sit there and eat a box of crackers and drink two liters of juice. And you'll be in as much trouble afterwards as you were when you started. But if you have revelation that, that the provision of the cross is represented in this, it becomes a point of contact. And in those elements, you can be loosed into supernatural existence. It's like baptism. You know, baptism won't save you either. You know that, don't you? I mean, if you go in the water and you've not made a genuine commitment to Jesus, all you are is wet. And, and, I, and I want you to understand, and this may be a good place to do it because I mentioned it last week. That's why we try to be careful as to who we baptize by way of kids. I understand kids can make commitments young in their life. I get that. My children made commitments when they were five, six years old in my household. So I get that. And we try to be careful about that because the last thing you want to do is reinforce in a child, this is just ritual. You will ruin them for the rest of their life. They'll walk out of there and think they're okay because they got wet. And they won't be okay. Now, I'll tell you again, I, I, some of these things we, we do police a little bit because we have opportunity to visit with people before we go to the baptismal tank. Whenever we have communion, of course, as I mentioned last week, that's a little bit more difficult uh, to do that because people are coming. That's why Paul said, he goes, and I'll talk about this next week, he said, that's why you got to examine yourself. And I'll say it one more time. If you don't choose to honor the table, Paul just simply said, you'll be weak, you'll be sick, and you'll cut your days off. He goes, I, I don't know what else I can tell you. It'll be its own judgment. And again, I'll just say, is that, is that serious? Yep, I think that's serious. It's a point of contact. And I honestly believe that the reason we don't see more miracles happen around our rituals 
is because the modern American church has become so flippant with it all. I, I, I've not seen this often, but I've watched people even come out of baptism tanks speaking in tongues. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. Maybe, maybe I see a couple hands. Maybe somebody has seen that before in their lifetime. We used to see things like that. Why is that? Because it was a point of contact for being filled with the Spirit. So we don't see that anymore. So what we become is dispensationalists and we just say, oh, God must not be doing it anymore. No, God still wants to do it. The key isn't that somehow God stopped doing it. The key is we got to break familiarity off of what we're doing. So this morning we're going to come to the table of the Lord. And uh, we're going to worship God. We're going to pray. And I don't know about you, but I'm believing for miracles today. Is that good? Are, will, you, will you agree with me for miracles today? Come on, this, this will be the day miracles will take place. Now, we're going to come to the table again next week, too. Three weeks in a row. You say, when are we going to do it again? I don't know. I guarantee you, we'll do it again. But your moment's now. This is your point of contact. Ask yourself this question. What do I need by way of provision from God today. What do you need? Do you need a miracle of healing? Do you need a deliverance? Are you racked with depressions and discouragements? Are you just depleted of spiritual energy? Do you, do you find yourself wavering? Are you, are you constantly ensnared? What are you needing provision for? The cross brings victory. And at this moment, something can happen that can forever change the direction and happenings in your life. I really want to make sure you get this. These are just elements but these elements can be your point of contact. Hey, Noah, would you come help me for a moment? And would you, uh, would you uncover the elements and the ushers that are prepared to help me? If, if you'd start making your way down, I'm going to explain to the people what we're going to do here in just a moment. If you were here last week, I think that uh, you probably got a good... Uh, illustration we're going to we're going to go row by row whether it's on the side the wings or this section these rows are going to come to the middle and then they can come down and participate at the table of the lord and I, I have some ushers to help me today hopefully we won't get too many traffic jams before we get down here although we ought to rush to the table shouldn't we music team why don't you come on down right now why don't you go ahead and partake and find your place And as they're partaking, how about let, let's the rest of us stand and let's just begin to ready our hearts to come to the table of the Lord.